Well, as I was thinking about this issue of proof, um, I, I called my very close friend, Billy Wood. And I said, Billy, how many holding ones have you had? Y'all are going to love this. Eight. I said, but didn't you tell me, this was years ago when we were roommates. I said, didn't you have a hole-in-one when you were playing by yourself? And he said, yeah, I did, but I don't count that. And think about that. I don't count that. Nobody saw it. But if Billy had to prove he'd made eight hole-in-ones, how would he do it? Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. Well, good morning. Um, when I was uh, getting dressed this morning, I, I, I started doing the math on this. Um, we started these breakfasts um, 20, 23 years ago, in 2000. And doing the math, uh, I, I, I estimate this is either the 75th, somewhere between 75 and 80 breakfasts here at the BCC. So um, <clears throat> a lot of time has gone by, and this is probably the 17th Good Friday special event we've had. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I truly believe that the first Good Friday and the first Easter Sunday truly were two days that radically changed our world. And I want to make some comments about both of them. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking how <clears throat> you give these messages year after year after year and, and you want to have new material, something that would be of real interest and maybe real encouragement. And I, I, I feel like hopefully I have that for you this morning. I want to start by considering the, the crucifixion you know, at the heart of the Christian faith is this one idea that is so significant and it relates to us. And I'm talking about the forgiveness of sins. You know, I think if you went to downtown Birmingham today and went out on the street and did a survey and you asked people this one question, who does God allow into heaven? What kind of response do you think you might get? Well, I think you'd probably get a host of answers. <clears throat> I think one of the main responses might be, well, good people go to heaven. That seems to be very logical. Or church-going people go to heaven. But that's not the right answer. You see, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so the right answer is, forgiven people go to heaven. In the book of Matthew in chapter 1, you all know this, this narrative. It's the kind of the basis of the Christmas story. You hear this every December. <clears throat> Joseph and Mary are to be married. But then Joseph finds out that she's pregnant and he's not the father. And so he plans to not to embarrass her or put her to shame. He plans to send her away. And an angel appears. And of course, this is my paraphrase. And the angel says, uh-uh, you're not sending her away. You're going to marry her. But she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. 
and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. I know if you think about that word save, you know, the implication is that, that, that you're in danger of some sort and that you need to be saved. But you know, there's another word that's used by the Apostle Paul uh, that I really like. He puts it another way, and I really like this because to me, this really kind of puts it in its proper perspective. He talks about this idea of our need to be rescued. He puts it this way in Colossians 1. He says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so what he's saying there, guys, is that we need to be rescued from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness is hell. And to be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. And you know, it's kind of interesting as we think about and reflect on Good Friday today. In John 19.30, just before he dies, Jesus yells out, It is finished! And he says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. And many people don't understand the significance of those last words, it is finished. You see, back in biblical times, like today, people would borrow money and incur debt. And this seems to be part of the human condition. I mean, you see that, that we have a bunch of bankers here today. You know, that's part of our, our lives today is, is, the, is incurring debt, borrowing money. <clears throat> but since back then there was no elaborate banking system, the common person might borrow from a wealthy individual. That was common. And they would, they would write up this written agreement called a certificate of debt. And the certificate of debt spelled out all the terms and conditions of their contract. And over time, if the debtor could not repay the creditor, there were two options. The first was they could go to jail. They called call it but basically, um, I think they had a name for it, debtor's prison. And so you would spend amount of time, a certain amount of time in prison and that would pay off your debt. But the preferred option would be to have the debtor work off the debt. In essence, the creditor owned the labor of the debtor. This may be where we got the idea of going to jail for a crime to pay your debt to society. And the Bible says this is the same situation we find ourselves in with God. As sinful people, we have incurred a debt that we are not capable of repaying. And once the debt was paid off, whether it was through prison or through work, the creditor would take the certificate of debt and he would stamp it with the Greek word teleo, which means paid in full. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he cried out, telio. Our, basically, he was saying, our sin is paid in full. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. God has forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. And what has he done? He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then in John 8, 24, Jesus tells us if we do not allow him to pay this debt, these are Jesus' words, he says, we will die in our sins, which means to carry your sins into death with you. They will follow you into eternity. And you'll have to give an account of your sin before God. And that's why I love these words, some of my favorite words in the New Testament, where Paul says in Romans 4, 8, Blessed is the man who will not have to give an account of his sins before God. And the reason is because Jesus accounted for our sins when he went to the cross. Now, I've been, I've been meeting with a guy. He's uh, an attorney, really fine man. And we recently went through the investigative study that Steve mentioned and we got towards the end of it, and he asked a really very good question. Maybe you have thought of, you thought of this yourself. He said, how do you know for sure that you're forgiven of your sins? And we talked about that. We walked through that. And so if you have any questions in your own mind about, am I truly forgiven? so that I don't have to give an account. If there's any question in your mind, I want to encourage you to go through the investigative study. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I go through it with, I've been through it with many, hundreds of men. And so that's available for you. Now, I have a great story I want to share that might help us understand um, the second part of this equation as far as the cross. The cross also is one of the, it's probably the greatest way that God has demonstrated his love for us. In fact, in Romans 5, 8, it says, God has demonstrated his love for us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And sometimes, guys, I think God's love for us is lost at the cross because of all the blood and the gore. But I have a great story I want to share with you that I think <clears throat> might help us better really understand what he did for us. In 1999, a movie was released and it was titled Three Seasons. <clears throat> and it was shot in Vietnam. And it won, kind, it won all kind of international awards. And it involved three different stories. And I want to give you a quick summary of one of these stories. It's very powerful. It's about <clears throat> a cycle driver named Hai. In other words, he makes deliveries by bicycle. And I believe it's in the city of Ho Chi Minh. And he's very poor. And he loves this woman whose name is Lan, L-A-N. And she's this beautiful prostitute. And they both have unfulfilled desires and they lead unfulfilled lives. But High dreams one day of marrying her. But Lan is trying to sleep her way out of the life that she hates so much. She hates the poverty and the filthy life she's in. 
And she longs to go to this clean, beautiful life of the people who live in these elegant penthouses where she comes and gives herself sexually to her customers. And she always has to leave because they never let her stay overnight. And yet life is just not working for her. Because the more she gives herself to prostitution in order to get out, the more she's brutalized and enslaved by it. But then High enters a cycle race. And to everyone's surprise, he wins it. And he wins the grand prize. It's this large sum of money. And because he's poor, there's so much he could do with it. But he spends it all on one thing. He rents an expensive room in one of the expensive hotels and he pays Land's fee to come be with him. And of course, you're watching the, those who watch the movie expecting some steamy love scene. But they're shocked when the two people get to the room and he tells her he doesn't want to have sex with her. He tells her that he has only purchased her a place as an actual guest in the world that she dreams of joining. And he asks her only permission to watch her fall asleep. And slowly and comfortably, she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, he's gone. He demanded nothing from her except the chance to fulfill her desire to belong. And what's so interesting in the movie, after this, something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to that life of prostitution. And the reason is, is she experienced for the first time someone who used their power to serve her and love her and not use her. And it changed her. It changed her life. She got a new sense of dignity that her life really mattered. And what you see that what happens in Land's life is that she had been changed by the transforming grace and power of selfless love. And this is a picture, in one sense, of Christ at the cross. Take a moment and think about his incredible power. You know, guys, we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. It has a hundred billion stars in it. It's a hundred thousand light years wide. <clears throat> and what's so hard to fathom is that the God of the Bible holds it in his hands. And so try to get your arms around this, that that same God came into the world as a man. And he died a horrific death for you and for me. And as small and insignificant as we appear in this vast universe, <clears throat> instead of crushing us because of our sin and our depravity, he came to serve us and give his life as a ransom for us. You see what he did at the crucifixion. He was tortured. He was stripped naked for all to see. He was spit upon. He was beaten. And in other words, he sacrificed all of his honor and all of his power to demonstrate his love for us. So we have Good Friday, the crucifixion. And now let's move to Sunday.
Easter Sunday. I've talked about this probably 16, 17 years in a row, but I'm, I want to share some maybe new insights this morning on the significance of Easter. You know, the Apostle Paul gives a famous sermon in the book of Acts. He's in Athens, Greece. Really kind of the center of, of knowledge. It's where philosophy started. And he gives this talk, this sermon, to this large group of pagan Greek scholars. And he quotes their philosophers. He quotes their poets. And he gets to the very end of the sermon. And he says this. This is Acts 17, 31. Because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In the Amplified Bible, which I really love and I, I feel like is maybe the most accurate, it says that God has given us, given evidence to everyone by raising him from the dead. So I ask you to think about those two words, proof and evidence. I don't think sometimes we realize how important this is as we live out our lives. And by definition, we're talking about the available body of facts indicating whether a belief or a proposition is true or valid. How do we know it's true or valid? I want to give you an example. This is kind of, it's kind of, this is kind of, I think you'll maybe enjoy this. Um, I was talking to um, a friend, if I got to tell you his name, Eddie Scriven. We were talking about hole-in-ones. He had a hole-in-one in a, in a charity golf event and won $50,000. I was telling him about this measly little hole-in-one that I made in COVID. And, uh, you know, COVID was such a weird time. This was right when it started. Everything was shut down. This club was shut down. You couldn't get a golf cart. If you played golf, you had to walk and carry your bag. And so I decided to play nine holes. And on number eight of the east, excuse me, the west, I made a hole in one. And Scriven asked, well, who, who witnessed it? And I said, my wife and two of my kids. And he shoots back, well, you know, family doesn't count. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? I said, my wife's the most honest human being alive. And it turned out he was just giving me some grief. But I'm curious to know, by show of hands, how many of you have ever played a round of golf? Raise your hand. This, this next one's going to be interesting. How many of you have ever made a hole-in-one? Yeah. How many of you have ever made a hole-in-one playing by yourself? <laughs> yeah, we could have had a lot of hands. I mean, I got... <laughs> Well, as I was thinking about this issue of proof, um, I, I called my very close friend, Billy Wood. And I said, Billy, how many holding ones have you had? Y'all are gonna love this. 
Eight. I said, but didn't you tell me, this was years ago when we were roommates, I said, didn't you have a hole-in-one when you were playing by yourself? And he said, yeah, I did, but I don't count that. Now think about that. I don't count that. Nobody saw it. But if Billy had to prove he'd made eight hole-in-ones, how would he do it? So I asked, we talked about that, I asked him. He said, well, just to be able to keep up with him, he says, you know, I, I have them written down. My first one, he was 12, playing in the Charlie Hall out here. And he says, I've written down the, the date, where I played, the course, and the whole number. And he said, I know, I know every person that was there to witness it. So think about it. You know, I, I believe Billy's made eight and holding ones because he's, he's got a lot of integrity. But he also has the proof. He's got the eyewitnesses. Now, how does this apply to the resurrection? You know, what if Christians just contended that Jesus rose from the dead but nobody ever saw him. You know, that, that just wouldn't work. But what you don't realize is the number of people that did witness it. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says he appeared to Peter. Of course, he appeared to the, the first people he appeared to was the two women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12 over a period of 40 days. And this to me is most significant. He appeared to 500 people, a crowd of 500 people, and spoke to them. And Paul says, and most of them are still alive today, and you can go check with them. And then he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And in 2 Peter 1.16, we're told by Peter, we, he's talking about he and the other apostles, we were all eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so how do we respond to the evidence for God? I mean, that, that's a significant issue. Is there evidence for God? You see, so often people let their preconceived theories and beliefs shape the way they see evidence that's out there. But guys, if you are a man with intellectual integrity, you will allow the evidence to shape your theories and your beliefs. You see, so many people, for so many people, our beliefs are not based on the truth of the evidence, but what we find to be appealing to our, to our desires, to our preferences. I'm a 69-year-old man. And one of the most important truths I've learned is that the healthiest, most together men I know are those who follow the dictum of Socrates, which is follow the truth, follow the evidence, wherever it leads. And before I jump into the heart of this, it's important to know that God does not expect us to operate by blind faith. I hear so many skeptics say, you, guys, you Christians, y'all operate by this blind faith that you have. But we don't. You see, faith is built on the foundation of evidence. 
If you have no evidence, you have blind faith. And God does not expect that of us. Give me an example. John the Baptist. You remember when he baptizes Jesus? The heavens open up. And the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends. And John hears this voice. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. This is, he was talking about Jesus who was baptizing. And then we're not sure how much time elapsed, but John was thrown into prison. And so it may have been just a, maybe a year, two years. He's sitting in prison, and he's starting to waver. He's starting to doubt. And so he sends a couple of his disciples. He says, go to see Jesus. And they ask Christ, are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? And notice Jesus does not say, he doesn't criticize John. He doesn't say, you, you man of little faith. He doesn't say, just tell him to believe and hang in there. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Yet Jesus raised several people, including Lazarus. He's instructing these men, point John to the evidence. Because faith needs a foundation. Because Christianity has never suggested that people take a leap in the dark. Instead, he invites us to step into the light that he gives us. You see, the Christian gospel is not a message that revels in ignorance. It's rooted in God's revelation. God's revelation to us in the person of Christ and in the resurrection. This is why I contend every single one of us should be asking these questions. Is Christ, is Jesus real? Did he rise from the dead? And is he alive today? I can't think of anything more important in life to figure that out. So what's the evidence? Well, I think it's important to know this. You, you can't go down to UAB in a science lab and they'll help you figure that out. It's not an issue of science. <clears throat> it, you can't go into a philosophy class and, and, and reason your way to the evidence. You see, you have to look at the historical record. You have to look at historical evidence. For some, you have to do historical investigation. Dr. Peter Moore says this, and I think he's spot on. You know, Christianity is the only world religion to make spiritual truth depend on historical events, particularly the resurrection. And as the Apostle Paul says, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should abandon Christianity because we're a bunch of fools. So it's important to know that there is an abundance of evidence and the evidence is incredibly compelling. But you have to examine it. and you have to think well because this is very significant. I'm gonna share three different things real quickly and then wrap it up with a thought or two.
You know, C.S. Lewis was an English scholar at Oxford. Um, he referred to himself as a literary historian. He knew ancient literature probably better than anyone. And he was a very, he was very content in his atheism. And then one day, one of his good friends, a very militant atheist at Oxford, a guy named T.D. Weldon, confided in Lewis. He said, it appears that the historical authenticity of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, including the resurrection, he said they appear to be surprisingly sound or true. And Lewis was floored. You see, he always saw the Bible as a bunch of myths, kind of like Norse mythology. But of course, he'd never read it. And he was so taken back, he decided to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as he read them, he was floored at what he read. He said, whatever the Gospels are, as an expert, in ancient literature, I can tell you, they are not myths or legends. He says they appear to be, listen to this, simple eyewitness accounts of historical events. And he also realized for them not to be true, then the apostles had to be the biggest liars in the world. Think about that. And he reasoned, that there are only two possible views you can take of this. And he's talking about the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and resurrection. There's only two options. He says either this is reporting of events that actually took place and this reporting is as close to the facts as possible or some unknown writer or writers in the first or second century without any known predecessor or successor suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic fiction. In other words, he says, the writers of the New Testament would have had to come up with a deliberate series of lies, put them in writing, and then send them out to be read throughout the entire Roman Empire. And then these same men who wrote it, these apostles, would then go out and die for these lies. He says it's hard to believe that these early Christians would intentionally conspire to write lies, die for those lies, and then have such an influence that a large movement would form that would eventually transform the Roman Empire. Because Christianity eventually became the official religion of the vast Roman Empire. Now, I believe probably the most, one of the most powerful pieces of evidence has been produced by Dr. Gary Habermas. He's a historian, a philosopher, and I keep his name in mind because I'm going to come back to him in a minute. Um, he's written seven, he's considered the, probably one of the real authorities on the resurrection. He's written seven books on it. Um, and he performed the most comprehensive investigation ever performed on what modern scholarship believes about the resurrection. He took a large team of researchers and they collected, listen to this, more than 1,400, 1,400 writings 
by historians and scholars on the resurrection. And they all had to be written after 1975 because he wanted the most up-to-date work. So you're talking about 1,400 different people who had written about the resurrection. He says, the works they studied come from across the ideological spectrum. There were some ultra-liberals, there were moderates, and there were what he called Bible-thumping conservatives. And he is to, his team collected all of this research, and what they ended up doing, they documented the facts that every single one of those 1,400 people agreed upon. And they came up with 12 what they call historical facts. And I'm not going through all of them. But you need to know, the resurrection was not one of the 12. Because there were several liberal his, uh, historians who questioned the resurrection. But they all agreed he died a Roman crucifixion. They all agreed he was buried in a private tomb. They all agreed that the tomb turned up empty. And for time's sake, I'm just going to read out of my book. This is, it comes from the Reflections on the Existence of God. So they all agreed there was a missing body. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then only one could only conclude that somebody stole it. That's the only conclusion you could come to. Somebody took it. <clears throat> they also all agreed that the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed so much that they were even willing to die for their belief. That was one of the 12. So there's an empty tomb. And the disciples' lives are transformed radically. If these are considered historical facts, how does one account for them? In relation to the empty tomb, if Jesus' body had been stolen, scholars agree that only three groups of people would be motivated to steal it. The Romans, the Jewish authorities, or the disciples. The problem is that the Romans and the Jewish authorities are not plausible suspects. Because once the resurrection was being proclaimed throughout Jerusalem, which was soon after he was buried, all they had to do was produce the body of Christ and Christianity would have died a very quick death. And then you've left with the disciples. Would they have stolen the body? Could they have stolen it, disposed of it, <clears throat> and then spent the rest of their lives propagating a lie? Does anyone seriously believe that these men who were discouraged, defeated, and who feared for their lives would go out, steal Jesus' body, and then proceed to boldly pre preach the resurrection to hostile crowds? What would motivate them to do this? Why face prison, torture, and death, all the while knowing that Jesus' dead body lay in some hidden place? That's a great question. And this is what's so interesting, guys, is that even those historians that who question the resurrection, every one of them acknowledges they have a hard time coming up with an explanation of what happened to the body. In fact, one example is a secular journalist with U.S. News and Royal Report said even the most skeptical biblical scholars concede that something extraordinary happened in Jerusalem after Good Friday to account for the radical change in the behavior of the disciples who at Jesus' arrest had fled 
to their own homes in fear. Because Jesus' resurrection account for the fact that within a few days, within a few weeks, they were boldly preaching their message to the very people who sought to crush them. Now, the final piece of evidence that I want to share, I think, is the most powerful. It's incredibly powerful. In fact, I've shared this several times, and so you, some of you have heard this. Uh, but if you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. A number of years ago, I was doing some research on the divinity of Christ. <coughs> and um, I began to notice how many men had set out to debunk the Christian faith, but most particularly the resurrection. They treated these six men, and they were all very scholarly. They were convinced through the study of the historical record that they could demonstrate how preposterous this claim of resurrection was. And the list of these men have grown. There's six of them that I know of. J.D. Anderson, Lee Strobel, William Ramsey, Josh McDowell, Frank Morrison, and Gilbert West. Very exceptional scholars. And they spent years studying the evidence. In fact, Ramsey spent 30 years studying archaeology in the Middle East. And what's so amazing, after years of examining the evidence, all six of them realize that they could not accomplish their mission. But this is what's so incredible. All six of them became Christians. All six of them. And two days ago, I stumbled, I, really, I literally stumbled in an old file, an essay by one of these six guys. <clears throat> I'd never seen it before. Or I must have seen it before because I put it in the file, but I don't remember it. Um, it was Lee Strobel. Now, Strobel was an attorney. He went to Yale Law School, and he was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. And the title of this essay was, How Easter Kills My Faith in Atheism. <clears throat> I shortened it a little bit. He said it was the worst news <clears throat> I could get as an atheist. He said my agnostic wife had decided to become a Christian. He says two words shot through my mind. The first was an expletive. The second one was divorce. He says I thought she was going to turn into a self-righteous holy roller. But over the following months, I was intrigued by the positive changes in her character and values. Finally, I decided to take my journalism and legal training and systematically investigate whether or not there was any credibility to Christianity. He said, maybe I figured I could extricate her from this cult of Christianity. He said, I quickly determined that the alleged resurrection of Jesus was the key. That's the key. Anyone could claim to be divine, but if Jesus backed up his claim by returning from the dead, then that was awfully good evidence he was telling the truth. He said, I took two years and I explored the minutia of historical data on whether Easter was a myth or reality. He traveled all over the world interviewing 
people. Gary Habermas was one of them. He says, one by one, he says, one by one, my objections evaporated. I read the books by skeptics, but their counter-arguments crumbled under the weight of historical data. He says, in the end, after I had thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. He said, it would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. And that's why I am now celebrating, and I updated this, I'm now celebrating my 31st Easter as a Christian. And listen to this, this is, this is maybe the most significant point he said. Not because of wishful thinking, not because of the fear of death or the need for psychological, a psychological crutch, but because of one main reason, the facts, the evidence. And he says, it's overwhelming if you're willing to look at it. This is why I tell skeptics, if you're searching for spiritual truth, start with the evidence for the resurrection. That's the best place to go. One final thought on the resurrection and then I'll give you my concluding remarks. <clears throat> the resurrection not only is the evidence which proved Jesus' divinity, but it's the greatest source of hope in the world. Think about that. Particularly when you're facing death. And we know what? We're all facing death. And I've shared this before that the word hope in the Bible is used as a noun. We use it primarily as a verb, but it's a life-shaping certainty of something that has not yet happened, but that we know one day will. I'm gonna read that again. It's a life-shaping certainty of something that has not yet happened, but that we know one day will. <clears throat> Guys, hope is about the future. We are hope-based creatures. We are shaped by how we view the future. And some people in this room today, as you're looking at the future, it probably doesn't look good. There's so many people in our culture today who have lived with despair, a sense of hopelessness. Any man I've ever met with who's struggling with depression, if you ask them, how does your future look? They say, it's hopeless. There's despair. And then you have those who look at the future and are optimistic and are hopeful. But what determines this in a person's life? And the answer is this. It's the source of your hope. It's the confidence you place in it. Is it reliable? And the Apostle Paul speaks of this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he talks about the despair that he experienced. He and his men, he says, we, we thought we were going to die. He says, we despaired even of life. And listen to this, it's very powerful. He says, but God was trying to teach us not to trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. It is upon, it is he upon whom we have set our hope, is what he says. 
The writer of Hebrews says this hope is the anchor of your soul. And if we don't put our, our hope in God who raises the dead, then who in the world are we going to look to? <clears throat> Ultimately, guys, there is power in the resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.10, he says, My desire is to know him, Christ, personally, and experience the power of his resurrection. I want to come back to Dr. Gary Habermas, <clears throat> who I referred to earlier. The guy had written seven books on the resurrection. And he's being interviewed by Lee Strobel. And Strobel asks him about the meaning of the resurrection in his own life. And Habermas decided to talk and he took a risk by describing what happened to his wife, Debbie. <clears throat> he says she slowly died of stomach cancer. Strobel says, caught off guard by the tenors of the moment, all I could do was listen. I sat on our porch. He sighed deeply, and then he went on. My wife was upstairs dying. Except for a few weeks, she was home through it all. It was an awful time. This was the worst thing that could possibly happen in my life. He turned and looked straight at me. But you know what was amazing? He said, my students would call me, not just one, but several of them. And they'd say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it really worked in my life. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask only one question, Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written seven books on that topic. Of course he was raised from the dead, but I want to know about my wife. I think he'd, come, he'd keep coming back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got this point, the resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death. And you know what? It worked in my life. It worked while I was sitting on the porch. And it still works powerfully today. It was a horribly emotional time for me. But I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when the truth, that truth about the resurrection didn't comfort me and give him peace. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. Habermas locked his eyes with Strobel. He says, and that's not some sermon I'm trying to give you, he said quietly. I believe that with all of my heart. If there's a resurrection, there is a heaven. And if Jesus was raised, Debbie will be raised, and I will be someday too. And then I will see them both. Guys, there's power in the resurrection. In closing, 
I've been recently reading through the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, and it's wild. I don't read it very often, but it's, it's out there. And uh, it's a very interesting book. <clears throat> but one of the things that I noticed throughout the book of Revelation, there's this phrase, <clears throat> the book of life, the book of life. And in the book of life is a record of all those destined for heaven. And in Luke 10, 20, Jesus says to his followers, be glad that your names are recorded in heaven in this book of life. Paul says in Philippians 4, 3, he's speaking of all of his fellow workers. He says, whose names are in the book of life. Excuse me. And then in Revelation 3, 5, He talks about those who walk with me, their names will not be erased from the book of life. But on Tuesday of this week, I read the 20th chapter of Revelation. And verse 15 really got my attention. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you probably wonder if I'm going to do a fire and brimstone message to close, and I'm not. Um, But this verse really hit me as it made me realize what a significant issue this is. And it was literally 49 years ago that I really was wrestling with this issue of my spiritual life. And I have to tell you guys, I was very fearful of entrusting my life to Christ. But I also wanted eternal life. I wanted my sins forgiven. I wanted my name to be recorded in the book of life. So... I waved the white flag and surrendered my heart to Christ at the age of 20. And I was resigned to this thought, I'm going to live a boring life from this day forward. And boy, was I wrong. I found purpose for the first time as I understood the reason for human life. I found that I was complete as a human being and I experienced a joy and a peace that I'd never experienced. And one other thing, and this is crucial and I think you'll appreciate it. And I know I'm about out of time, but there's a movie and I bet a number of you saw it. It was back, I think, and made in 2007, anyway. It was called As Good As It Gets. You see the movie? Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunter in it. Nicholson is Melvin Udall. He's a schizophrenic, he's a nut, and um, he's an author that writes romantic novels, and you look at him and you think, how in the world does he do this? Helen Hunt is this poor waitress that works at this breakfast, kind of this breakfast restaurant, and he goes and has breakfast there every day, and he's just taken by her. He loves her. Uh, and as, as, this, as the movie develops, you get the impression she doesn't really like him because he's so weird. But he's the only man that's pursuing her. 
And towards the end of the movie, they're having dinner. And she says, Melvin, give me a compliment. You've never given me a compliment. And he perks up and he says, I got one for you. She says, what's that? He says, since I've met you, I've started taking my pills again. (laughs) And she looks at him like, that's the best you can give me? And this next line is priceless. He says, you make me want to be a better man. You make me want to be a better man. She just melted. And I share this, guys, because once you become a Christian, Jesus wants to empower you to become a better man. He wants to strengthen your character. He wants to give you great wisdom. Wisdom comes from the Hebrew word chakma, which means to have the skill or expertise in life. How valuable would that be to be an expert in living? And finally, he wants to give you a greater capacity to love and to have deep, substantive relationships. You see, we can't produce this on our own strength. Yeah, you can't change your heart. Nor can you or or me fill the emptiness of our souls. And therefore, God has to do a work in your life. And he wants to do a work in your life. And what I've learned is that the deeper you go into a relationship with him, the greater the transformation we will experience in our lives. And so I end with these two questions. I asked them earlier. Do you know for sure you're forgiven of your sins? And two, is your name written in the book of life? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is I'm not really sure, then we can change this. And we do this every year at this Good Friday Friday breakfast. I'm not going to have an altar call. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up or raise their hands. But I'm going to close with a simple prayer of entrusting your life to Christ. If If this is something that you would want to do, if this is the desire of your heart, I would ask you to pray like this. Let's pray. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinful man, and Lord, I need to be rescued by you. Lord, I need to be forgiven. I pray that you would have mercy on me. I also entrust my life into your care. Lord, I wave the white flag. I surrender my heart. And I pray that you'll come into my life and that you will begin to make me a better man. And by faith, I thank you for doing this. In Christ's name, amen. One last thing, if this was your prayer, on that card, just mark the interest in the investigative study. And we'll be in touch with you because what we want to do is is, is basically teach you how to grow spiritually. Y'all been a great audience. I appreciate you being here. You're dismissed.
You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, Founding Director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.